A lot of times when we are on the same team, when we're part of the same family, when we are supposed to be working toward a common goal, moving in the right direction, because of interpersonal conflicts, because of, of animosity, because of things that take place that should not take place, we are not efficient. Let me ask you a question. Why is the church of God saved by the grace of God, empowered by the strength of God, filled with the Spirit of God, not more effective at exalting God in our neighborhood, in our community, and seeing lives changed and transformed? Well, in our study of Let's Do This, we're, on the, we're in Romans chapter 12. Our text today, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10, but I want to look at those two verses. Historically, I believe one of Satan's biggest tools to disrupt, distract, and disable God's people from being used by God in the ways that God would use us is to get good folks, Bible-believing Christians, to divide and to argue over issues that are secondary, tertiary, that are less important, not important. And though, though, though those who like to argue over things feel like every issue is equally important. Spiritually immature people cannot seem to recognize and learn the fact that truly godly people can disagree about things without having to divide and act as enemies. And I want you to think about it. If we spend as much time genuinely praying, not just surface praying, you know what I mean, surface praying, God bless our time together, da, 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 with no real connection. But if we spent as much time on our knees before a holy God, if we spent as much time really loving and demonstrating the kindness of God to people, if we spent as much time talking and exalt, talking about and exalting our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we do dwelling on things that just don't matter as much, what difference would that make in our effectiveness, in our availability, in how God chooses to use us, in our influence, in our influence among those we already have influence over and expanding that influence. I believe nothing is more damaging and nothing is more foolish than believers representing Christ being grumpy, complaining, fighting, conflicting, arguing, criticizing, critiquing over trivialities while people who we love, who we ought to love, people who we care about, people who God reached us, placed us here to reach, are living and dying apart from God's grace, God's love, and God's forgiveness. I believe it is the scheme of the devil for us to be divisive, church to church, congregation to congregation, denomination to denomination, but also inside congregations, rather than genuinely loving one another. That's why in our text, when we said, we started, remember in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, crawl up on the altar, a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and acceptable unto God doing that which pleases Him, which is your reasonable service of worship, not being conformed to the world, not going like and following the world's definition of love or, or self-motivated love or the, the philosophies of this age, but rather being transformed by the renewing of your mind, showing people, learning ourselves, walking in what God's good and perfect and acceptable will is. And the first barrier to that, of course, is pride, is arrogance. Let no man think higher of himself than he ought to. And so we went from pride and arrogance and the danger that we have there uh, to, to valuing one another and understanding that we're all part of the body and that everyone 
has a place of service, but now, how do we serve? How do we love? To lay the groundwork for what follows, Greg, uh, February, let's do this again. To lay the groundwork for what follows. February is a great month to talk about love, isn't it? You guys have sweethearts? Thank you. You're a good man. Testing one, two, three. Test. Testing one, two, three. Am I on? Good. All right. Um, I turned that off. You'll need to turn it back on. February is a good time to talk about love and to explore what love is. Here's the problem, though, when we do that. And listen now. Here's the problem when we do that. We think love is what we see in the movies. We think love is what we hear in the songs. We think that love is what we have been exposed to as some sort of emotional feeling or infatuation or something that just kind of wraps us up and takes us up. Matter of fact, we don't aspire to love. We fall into love. (laughs) We stumble into love. Love just kind of attacks us. And yet, I don't think we have a good understanding yet, or at least a full understanding. A way that we can grow in understanding is understanding what the Bible says about love. I want us to read the text of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. It begins very simply, verse 9, let your love be genuine. King James Version, let your love be without dissimulation. NIV, let your love be without hypocrisy. Not hypocritical love, not pretending to love, real love. What is the expression of that? Abhor. By the way, in Greek, this is the the, the strongest word for hate. Abhor what is evil. But what do you do? You let go of that, you abhor it, and you cling to what is good. And then the command to love one another with brotherly love or brotherly affection, outdoing one another and showing honor. So we're going to spend some time talking about how we love one another this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. I pray that you will challenge us, that you will convict us, that you will inform us, that you will instruct us. I pray above all that you will convict us of the parts of our heart that are not loving and that you will fill us with your love and teach us how to love, how to love one another as a witness and a testimony, as a step of obedience to you, but as a witness and a testimony to those around us as well. We want to be steadfast servants, unshakable, unswerving in our obedience to you and our serving to you, service to you and service to others that others may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We want to be those who roll up their sleeves, but Father, we don't want to be simply on the same team arguing and bickering or arguing and and, and being uh, separate from one another. We want to be united as your people walking together in the way that you would have us to go. So instruct us and teach us this morning. We love you and we trust you. In your name I pray. Amen. Now in English, we use the word love for a lot of different things. You can love chocolate ice cream. You can love coffee. You can love a movie. Or you can have the romantic love. Or you can have a sacrificial love. There's all different ways that the word love is used. In Greek, though, they use different words. And many of you will be familiar with these. I want to just simply give you three that are used in the New Testament. What is the most common Greek word for love in, in, in the Scriptures? You tell me. Agape. Agape. It looks like a gape, but it's agape. It's a Greek word. That last letter is an ada. And agape love is unselfish love. It's a word used more 
than any other word for love in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's used, I think it's 115, 117 times in the original language in the New Testament. It, it, is, it is used more times than there are pages in the manuscripts of the New Testament. It is not surprising that Greek literature shows little light on the definition because common in the Greek language of the day, this word was used very little. It was used, but it was used very sparingly. It wasn't characteristic of their description of love at the time. Biblical agape love is the love of choice, the love of serving with humility. It's the highest kind of love. It's the noblest kind of devotion. It's the love of the will, a choice not motivated or not dependent upon how you feel about someone. Can I just illustrate that to you for a moment? Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13 when he was preparing to leave? A new commandment, this is John 13, a new commandment I give unto you. What is the new commandment? That you love one another. Was that a new commandment? Been around since Deuteronomy 6. Been around since the Pentateuch, certainly since Moses. What was the new part of the commandment that you love one another? He goes on to say, in the same way or just as I have loved you. What he does is he raises the bar from, all right, love one another, feel good about one another, that sort of thing, to love as I have loved you. Now, how has Christ loved you? But now has God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were weak, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, 6, 7, 8. When we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. It is an unconditional love. It's not I love you because I like you. I love you because of you've earned it some way or you've done something to please me and so I'm going to love you. It's loving the unlovable, not of necessity. It may be loving the lovable, but it is loving as a choice that's not based upon simply an emotion or a feeling. In Romans chapter 8, we have this beautiful description of the love of Christ for us. What can separate us from the love of God? It's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing. Uh, famine, peril, sword, life, death, enemies above, enemies below. Nothing can separate us from love. It is not only unconditional, it is enduring. It's not this flighty kind of love that says, I love you for a while, and then if I don't, if you're not lovable anymore, I'm not going to love you anymore. But that's the way the world sees love so often, isn't it? But then you get to Romans chapter 15. And he talked about loving one another. Romans chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. We'll get to there, all right? It's a lot of fun. But what he says there is that, listen, you ought to love one another. You ought to honor one another. You ought to serve one another in such a manner that you make decisions not to please yourself, but for the benefit of others. You, you have liberties. You have liberties to enjoy things, liberties to do things until of necessity they encroach upon the good of someone else. And at that point, you deny yourself. So it is, it is not only unconditional, it is not only a long-term love, it is a sacrificial love. That's agape. Now, what is phileo? Any of you ever been to Philadelphia? 
Many of you, is it the city of brotherly love? <laughs> wow, the people who've been said, no. But, but you know, that's what it's called. Do you know why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love? Because of the word phileo, which means love, and adelphos, which means brothers. You put those together, you get Philadelphia, brotherly love. And phileo is a word that speaks of familial kind of love, a brotherly love, a, a friendship, a kindness, a union, a connection. It's what we see in First Peter chapter 1, a description of a brotherly love. Now, we know what that is. The first kind of love is, all right, I determine, not based upon emotion. The second kind of love, phileo, involves emotion. We, my family and I and us got together. We got together with family at Christmas. I just love it when we're all together. I love it when we're all together. Don't you love it when you're all together with your family? For about three days? No, I'm kidding. We love it when we're all together. We could certainly stand to live up together all the time. But I will tell you that... The emotions come and go. There are good days and bad days. There are highs and there are lows. There are some swings on these emotional relationships. And that's why phileo always follows agape in Scripture. I determine to love so that my emotions can follow, not so that I follow my emotions. Because if I follow my emotions, how I feel may change well on whether the sun is shining or not. And yet, the love that God calls us to love with, love with is the love that he fills us with to overflow through us. Real love, unselfish, selfish, sacrificial, enduring love, phileo, brotherly love. But there's another Greek word that's used for love in the New Testament. It is the word storge. Are you familiar with that one? That's way less common. But I like it. Storge is affection. Affectionate love. Now it's used in uh, what Second uh, Timothy chapter three verse three when it says that men will not love one another and it uses a storge uh, it negates it uh, here in this passage of Romans chapter twelve verses nineteen we have all three of these words we have agape let your love be genuine but we also have Philadelphia love one another with brotherly love and then we have what a combination of words philo storge let your love be warm. And affectionate toward one another. And the last phrase is honor. We're going to get to honor next week. I just thought we'd spend some time exploring what it means to genuinely love, laying the foundation as we go further through this passage of Scripture. And I want us to kind of just lay some basic principles down. This call to love is a pretty high standard selfless, unconditional, sacrificial, familial, brotherly, and kind, warm, and affectionate. Here's the first and basic foundational principle that we need to embrace. And if you're taking notes, this is a good place to start if you haven't written anything down. Loving God means loving one another. You see, loving one another is not an option. If we love God, we love. We determine to love. We decide to love one another. Scripture says if anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen... For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Jesus himself said that his disciples are to be distinguished by their love. Here's what he said again, that, that verse I, I referred to earlier in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. In the same way, in the same manner, so you must love one another. 
As a matter of fact, if you just look at the commands to love, and, and I had a bunch of them listed out, like about 20, and I decided that was probably too much. But just listen to a few of these. You know John 3.16. What about First John 3.16? By this we know love that he laid down his life toward us. We ought to lay down our lives for, for the brothers. There's your sacrificial and your familial love. 1 Corinthians 6.14, loving God and loving others is the believer's ultimate ambition. Let all that you do be done in love. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he says, be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And again, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you, Ephesians 4.32. Love is the prevailing attitude. Love is the motivation of how we serve together, how we serve God, how we work together, and how we live together. And so here's the question. How's it going? How are we, how are we doing at loving each other? I, I always loved it when you talk to your kids and you're raising your kids. Uh, Chrissy was a big one on, I love everybody. I love everybody. And, and we tend to think that, don't we? We love everybody, and we make the decision to do so until somebody doesn't love us, until they criticize me, until they annoy me, until they frustrate me, or until they disagree with me, until they insult me, until they offend me, until they do something I don't like, or until they get under my skin. My dad was a good and godly man, a great man. We would eat around the dinner table often as a family. There was one thing he could not abide. Can you guess what it is? Chewing with your mouth open. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to some of you, but I want you to know in my house, it could get you knocked across the room. And so we would be eating and we would be talking and all of a sudden if you heard saw dad get quiet and cock his head like he's listening close, you could tell he's zeroing in on somebody that smacked their mouth when they ate. When I went off to college, I brought some friends back home and they were deaf friends. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever sat around the table with a group of deaf people, but deaf people can't hear themselves when they eat. And so it is not an issue. It is completely not an issue how much noise they make when they eat. It's not an issue how much noise they make anytime. But it's not an issue how much noise they make when they eat. So dad's at the head of the table. We're gathered around the table. We've got the leaves in, people in. And boy, let's just say it was a noisy meal. And I kept looking at dad and looking at dad and looking at dad. And seriously, when we first sat down, his face got real red. And I could just see him take a deep breath, release it, and just turn on, turn whatever that was, turn it off and enjoy the meal and interact. And I talked to him about it later. I said, Dad, I wanted to apologize. I didn't even think about what this would have done to you at mealtime. And he said, listen, your friendships and your people and this meal is more important than that. I have a responsibility to raise you. I don't have a responsibility to raise them. But it's a completely different circumstance and situation anyway. He said, and it is not an issue. Here's, what I, here's the whole illustration of that. 
there are things that can get under our skin and there are things that can irritate us and there are things that can frustrate us and annoy us and even be an offense to us. We can be harmed, hurt. We can be criticized. And yet we can still obey the command that God has given us to genuinely love one another. Not pretend, not put on the mask, but genuinely love one another. We have to resolve to grow in love. Less of me, more of Christ in me. We have to deal with what it means to love and what it means to genuinely love. Let your love be without dissimulation, without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy, let it be genuine. By the way, in the Greek, it's without hypocrisy. Hupomeno, under, all right? Uh, to, be, to be under and to, no, hupokrino. Hupo and krino. To judge under. And what that means is, it's like the Greek actors who would wear a mask. If you could see under the mask, you would judge differently. You would see what's really there. And a lot of times what we have in our relationships is we put on a face or a facade or we pretend to love. We let our love be an act rather than allowing it to come down all the way into our hearts. The command to not let it be an act means that it can be. Did you know that you can pretend to love someone by serving someone? You can look loving, but underneath you can have very different motivations. Remember what the first sin was he mentioned in this passage? Let no man think higher of himself than else. It's pride. It's arrogance. Uh, it, we, uh, we can serve others for our own benefit. We can let our love be kind of a manipulating kind of love, uh, a love where we serve God or where we serve one another, where we do things to our gain. Jesus talked about this. He talked about this with the Pharisees. You remember how the Pharisees would give offerings? You remember the stories? In Matthew, I think it's chapter 5. No. In Matthew, he talks about the Pharisees, how they will take their offerings, and rather than, and you're going to, uh, I'm going to update the illustration just a little bit. Rather than putting their offering in an envelope, putting in the plate quietly when it came by, they'd bring it, take the cash, turn it into coins, put it in big containers, walk to the temple, and dump it into the metal receptacles so that it clanged, so that people could know how much money was going in there and that a lot was going in. And Jesus called them hypocrites. He says, they are donating. They're being generous. Isn't generosity a good thing? They're giving. Isn't giving a good thing? But what was the motivation of their heart? It was recognition. It was pride. It was arrogance. It was look at me. Uh, what about those who seem to love or seem to serve, seem to connect, but they have completely different motivations under the mask probably the biggest group of these people in the new testament were the false prophets and the false teachers in first peter chapter 2 peter is writing to uh, to warn them about what was taking place there and in first peter chapter 2 when he's talking about these sheep and no wolves in sheep's clothing not sheep and wolves clothing that wouldn't work but wolves in sheep hypocrites those who are hiding here's how he describes them he says they have eyes full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. It's what they want. They're accursed children. They forsake the right way. They've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. You remember the story of Balaam? His donkey preached to him? 
A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Here's what he's saying in this. One of the characteristics of these false prophets is they aren't serving God selflessly, sacrificially. They aren't loving you well. They are loving for their own gain. And that's why you and I need to make sure to check the motives of our heart. Why do we serve? If there's a job for everyone and there's a role and there's a responsibility or something for all of us to do, why do we serve? We serve for the glory of God out of obedience to Him because of the mercies He has given to us as an expression of love to Him. Why do we serve others? We serve because we love them. We serve for their good, for their benefit, for their gain, not for what we get. Do you gain when you're obedient? Do you gain when you love and you love well? Yes, you do, but the motivation of our heart is not about us at all. The motivation of our heart in service, the motivation of our heart in relationships is for the good of one another, but it's hard to do. You remember the old poem. I've quoted it several times. It's just a wag. Years ago, I heard actually Chuck Swindoll use this in a sermon. It stuck in my head. And I like it, so I claim it and use it, and I'll credit it when I think of it. But he used a little poem. He said, uh, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with these Christians I know, that's another story. Uh, one of the, the books I read in preparation for this study and previous said that Christians in church are like porcupines in winter. Because we're in the world, we gather together for warmth and protection. But the closer we get, the more we stick, prick, poke, and prod each other. And we're in this continual movement of coming together and moving apart, coming together and moving apart, coming together and moving apart. Can I tell you that there's a call here for us to grow, to mature in love, to let little things go, to address big things, and to become better at loving one another as Christ loved us. But when it gets hard, our tendency is to say, well, you know, I love these guys. Those guys, not so much. I'm going to hang with these guys. And we'll let those guys do something else. And so, you know, there's this kind of distancing, this kind of relational distancing that we do. And we determine just to keep our distance. I mean, we won't fight. We won't argue. But we don't have to spend time with them. We don't have to interact with them any more than we just absolutely have to. After all, it's not like we're attached or family or something. But here's the deal. We are. We are attached. We are family we have one father we have one spirit who lives within us we have to not only decide to love one another we have to pray that God will do something in our heart to move us from simply agape love a decision to where we can experience the emotion that God intends to come along with it a phileo a family bond a connection a storge a warm Affection. We are to be known by our love. And you can't do that when you just simply draw a line and say, you stay over there, I'm going to stay over here. You just can't do it. Now, there are times when you need to separate. Let's go ahead and put point two on the outline because 
This is the point I'm teaching to. Ignoring broken relationships means that we're ignoring God. We're ignoring God's commands. Here's the here's the danger of ignoring conflict or not willing being willing to grow in love. There are times when we're called to separate from one another. Obviously, we're called to separate darkness from light. We're called to separate from false teachers, Second Corinthians chapter six, from heretics within the church, Second John chapter nine, verses one to eleven. There are times when we're called to separate from believers, Matthew chapter eighteen, First uh, Corinthians chapter five. There are times when you can even separate from Christians heading in the same direction but with differing core beliefs, Second Thessalonians chapter three, six through fifteen, which is not an all or nothing separation. And there are times when it's wise to put distance so that you. You can grow and God can work in your heart as you then begin to reach back out. But can Christians, here's a question for you to consider. Can Christians who are called to the same body under the headship of Christ Jesus just simply close the door and break off a relationship with one another? Is that biblically permissible? With the exceptions that are in Scripture, is that biblically permissible? Just because it's easier. Even when we are called to appropriately part ways, it is not to be done with anger or bitterness, but with love and sincere interest in the best and highest good of the other. Let me tell you why this is dear to me. I hear a lot on radio, TVs, other sermons about if you've got people in your circle of friends who are dragging you down, you just need to get rid of them and cut them off and push them out of your life. Y- y'all hear that, right? If they're not lifting you up, they're tearing you down. Move away from them. Get them out of your life. Just just cut them off. And I will tell you that there are times, biblically, we're going to look at them as we go through this study in February. There are times when you need to establish a boundary that honors God, glorifies God, better for them, better for you, and, and, it's, and it is God's will. But I'm afraid that too often we simply say, I should love them. I know I'm called to love them. It's just too hard for me to love them. And we're not willing to allow God to work in our hearts to bring us to the point where he wants us to have the relationship, where he brings us to the relationships that he intends that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ as we grow in love one with another. Does that make sense? Do I sound like I'm preaching? Boy, I don't like this church. Even your sermons on love sound angry. (laughs) Here's what I want. Here's what I believe God wants. I believe God calls us to let our love be without hypocrisy. That doesn't mean you have to prove it. We, we don't approve of everything that everybody does. We don't have to sign off on everything that every, everybody does. What I mean is the decision that we make to serve one another selflessly, sacrificially, and enduringly. And that we don't let relationships get broken and ignore them simply because it's inconvenient or difficult or because we're going to have to confess something or we're going to have to repent of something or we're going to have to deal with something we'd rather just put behind us. And we allow a grudge or bitterness to build up. You guys know what that's like? You know what it's like to get mad at somebody and then 20 years later that anger is still hanging around? I can give you illustration after illustration and story after story of relationships that were broken a long time ago and they were never mended simply because it would have required someone coming to the point of saying I was guilty or I'm sorry or I, I not opening the door to mend the relationship. And I'm telling you, as believers, we don't get a pass. Insofar as it lies within us, we need to be at peace with all men. We need to let our love be without hypocrisy 
and dissimulation. We need to ask God to create in us loving hearts, love for one another. It's a big deal. As we go through this study, you're going to find out that it is humbling. At times, it's going to be humiliating. At times, it's going to make you deal with things that you'd rather not, for, not deal with at all. You'd rather not even remember. And yet, God works His will in us for His glory so that we can allow all that we do to be done with love. God's unconditional love that abides in us through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, again, it doesn't mean you have to like all that they do. You don't have to agree with everything that they do. But it means that you're willing to be motivated by love as you grow and develop that relationship. I'll tell you one story really quick. I've been the pastor of Penland Street probably three years, four years. And I had a person come up to me one Sunday morning. By the way, it's not a good time to talk to me about serious things on Sunday morning, okay? Talked to me after the service, called me, but they came up to me one Sunday morning before the service and said, I just need to get this off my chest. <laughs> I said, well, what's that? And this individual looked at me straight in the face and said, I just want you to know I don't like you. And, of course, I was a little taken aback. And I said, oh, what, is it something that I've done? No, it's not something that you've done. Is it a theological difference? No. It's, it's not theology. I said, well, is there anything I can do to prove our relationship? And this person said, honestly, I just, I don't like your personality. I don't like the way you talk. I don't like the way you look. Have y'all ever had that happen to you? I cannot be the only person that's ever happened to. I'm going to get really distressed if I'm the only person that's ever happened to. But I think what... I will tell you that if it hadn't happened to you, it's just somebody hadn't talked to you about it, okay? Here's what I want you to understand. When I talk about loving one another, I don't mean that we ought to go around pleasing everybody. That we ought to be going around conforming ourselves so that everybody loves us. You understand what I'm saying? That's not the motivation here. It's not. What is our motivation? Our motivation is to glorify God, to reflect His character, and then to work for the good of that person. By the way, that person stayed in the church for another four years before they left. And, and there were some issues that we had to deal with on an ongoing basis simply because there was no decision to love. There was no willingness to pursue a brotherly love. And there was certainly, draw, the line was drawn in any sense of warm affection. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a, it's a progressive part it's growing and deepening, and it's allowing God to soften your heart toward one another. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to agree or approve of all that they do. Our goal is to please God, and then our goal is to serve one another. You can disagree agreeably. You can be angry and sin not. You can be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. If you love someone, you may have to correct them. If you're in a position of authority and responsibility, you may have to rebuke them. You may invite someone into ministry. You may have to invite someone out of a particular role and into a different area. The goal is God's glory and the good of the body and the members of the body. Does that make sense? But it's got to be motivated by love. Even speaking a hard truth to a brother or sister in Christ, our motivation ought to come from a place of love. And here's the last point. There's no shortcut to maintaining right relationships. 
It's work. It's hard work. There's no shortcut to maintaining right relationships. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And in the first letter he wrote, he commends them throughout the letter of how much and how well they love one another. He says, concerning brotherly love, this is chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, isn't that a commendation? Boy, God has taught you, you guys how to love. Y'all love well. God has taught you how to love. For that indeed it is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. You're doing great. You can stop now. We're settled. Is that it? No. What is the last phrase? But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Can I tell you something? This is not something you ever get to check off your list. This is an area that you continually get to grow in. It takes work, hard work, serious self-examination. You'll find it humbling, sometimes humiliating. It's going to cost you to love well and to keep relationships right. And so I want to give you three ways today, and these will be brief, but three ways, very simply, to grow in love one one toward another. The first one, simple. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. When... uh, when you introduce family members, how do you introduce them? My loving, Suzanne and I have reached a certain age where we watch Wheel of Fortune in the evenings. You guys are aware that Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy is kind of a demographic thing, I think, but we do the Wheel of Fortune. And when, you, when they introduce a contestant on Wheel of Fortune, how do they introduce them? How do th- those people introduce their family? My loving husband, my wonderful husband, my darling wife, my beautiful wife. And I've got three outstanding genius children. Why do people talk like that about their family? Because they're family. Because they love them. How do you talk about brothers and sisters in Christ that serve alongside of you? Gets a little bit more serious then, right? What is one of the indicators when we watch our mouth? We not are only shaping our heart. Our heart shapes what's in our mouth, but our mouth can have an influence on what goes on in our heart. You understand that, right? All right? When we watch what we say about one another, if we're saying the wrong thing, watching helps us to be able to examine what's going on in our heart. But using what's in our heart can help us shape what's going on in, I mean, in our mouth can help us shape what's going on in our heart. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture from Colossians. And Paul is closing his letter in Colossians chapter 4, and he's giving a list of names that he's introducing. And I want to give it to you not the way he does it. How about this? I'll give it to you the way that we might would do it. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Isn't that a great way to talk about someone? I love this guy. He's beloved and he's faithful and he's coming to you. But what if he included something like, be patient. He does tend to use the same illustrations in his sermons. He does ramble. He repeats himself and... His voice will get on your very last nerve. Oh, but with him is Onesimus, verse 9, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Great introduction. But what if he had said, I need you to overlook his clothes. He's a slave and he dresses like one. Oh, and he has some of those slave traits. You know, he comes across as a 
people-pleaser and a little obsequious. Aristarchus, he says, appropriately, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And he could have said, you remember him, right? He's the guy that ducked out on that first missionary journey. He's doing pretty good now, but keep your eye on him. Hard for a leper to change its spots. Do you understand what I'm saying? We've got to watch our mouth. We need to be more like Paul, who simply gushes and honors with his voice the people that he commends to them. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only ones of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayer so that you may stand mature and fully assured. You understand we need to watch our mouths and speak in such a way that we honor and lift up and exalt one another. It's a very simple demonstration of agape and phileo and storge love. Second thing, be kind in practical ways. Be kind in practical ways. As family, as one who cares for one another, we are to love not only in word, but we are to love in deed and in truth. And there are a thousand ways to do that. You're better at it than I am. I don't need to tell you what it is. But speak well to and about. Demonstrate kindness. And then if you're aware of something in your heart, guard your heart. Don't let bitterness take root. How did Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say we should behave toward our enemies and those who persecute us and those who despitefully use us? We're love them. Demonstrably love them. Demonstrate love to them. And if we're to do that with our enemies, shouldn't we do it with our family? Aren't we called to do it? M.R. Dehan was a Bible teacher, a broadcaster, and the founder of the little booklet called Our Daily Bread. He shared this. In one of his writings, he said, I heard the saddest words today. Two believers were discussing an issue about which they had differing opinions, and the older of the two seemed pretty smug. He shared scripture, but he wielded it like a weapon, chopping away at the things he saw wrong in the younger person's life. The younger man just seemed weary of the lecture. He seemed weary of the other person, discouraged he was ready to leave the conversation. When their conversation came to a close, the older man commented on the other's apparent disinterest and said, You know, I don't know what's happened to you. You used to be eager. He started, and then he just quit and said, I don't know what you want. You missed the chance to love me, the young man said. And all the time you've known me, what has seemed to matter most to you is pointing out what you think is wrong about what I think and what I believe and what I've done. What do I really want? I want to see Jesus in you and through you. Now, Dehan writes and says, Had this been said to me, I thought I would have been devastated. In that moment, I knew the Holy Spirit was telling me that there had been people I'd missed the chance. I'd missed the chance to love. I'd missed the chance to be kind to, to be gracious to. I'd missed the chance to value. The Apostle Paul tells us that love must be the undying motive. In everything that we do, in everything that we do, let us not miss the chance to show love.
DeHaan finishes his article with the simple phrase, love beats a lecture every time. Now, can I tell you, sometimes a lecture is needed. But if it's not motivated by, wrapped and wrapped up in and conveyed in love, it can achieve the opposite of what it was intended to achieve. The Roman Christians took this to heart. Rome became church, known as a church who loved one another well. One of their detractors even wrote, these people love each other almost before they know one another. <laughs> Don't we want to be that kind of church? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, you need to come back. This is just the introduction. This is just love. This is verse 9 and 10. All right? What about when people make me mad? What about when I'm right and they're wrong? Uh, what about when they're having a good time and I'm having a bad time or I'm having a good time and they're having a bad time? How do we love different people in different circumstances? We got all of February to go through that and we're going to have a ball. But it's going to be painful. It's going to be like going to the doctor. And what I believe is going to happen as we come through this embracing these truths, God's going to shape us in ways that we've never been shaped before. Isn't God good? Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us well. Thank you for loving us unconditionally, for loving us sacrificially, and for loving us in a lasting manner that goes on and on and does not quit and does not end. does depend even upon our own behavior. And Father, I pray that you will teach us to love. Teach us to love good. Teach us to love well. Teach us to love with the love with which Christ has loved us. Not only in the same manner, but in the same strength and in the same power, in the same personality, in the same ways. Father, I pray that you'll deepen our love for one another as a witness and a testimony of who you are to a world that doesn't even understand true love. Help us to be those who convey it, those who portray it, those who engage in it. In your name I pray. Amen.